Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came out to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and which I have charged you. David also said, I have made an appointment with my young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Pray with me. Our great God and Father, we do ask now, as we take time to open up and look at your word, that you would encourage us and change us so that we might be uh, changed more and more into the likeness of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Well, the year was 1943, World War II was well underway, and the Allied forces had just pushed Hitler and the Nazis out of northern Africa. And in his retreat, Hitler identified the island of Sicily as the most likely next target for the British to, to try and advance. And Sicily was important because if Sicily fell, then Italy would fall. And if Italy fell, Hitler's strongest ally, Mussolini, would be out of the picture. But the problem was, Hitler knew this. And so he had reinforced the island of Sicily to the point that the British needed to come up with a new plan. They began to turn their eyes towards Greece and the Balkans. It seemed like they had no hope until the morning of April 30th. On that morning, this is a true story. This is, this is pretty amazing. On the morning of April 30th, the body of Captain William Martin of the Royal Marines was found by local fishermen near the port of Huelva, Spain. Captain Martin appeared to have been in a plane crash, and he had drowned in the ocean, and chained to his waist was a briefcase containing a number of sensitive documents, one of which was a specific letter that if it were to fall into the hands of the enemy, would reveal the Allies' plan <clears throat> for the imminent invasion of Greece. Well, Welva, Spain was also known as a stronghold for Nazi spies. And as soon as the coroners began to examine the body and the documents that were possessed by William Martin, the spies were informed and they were allowed to come in and take pictures of everything William Martin had. 
and they sent it off to Hitler with no one being the wiser. As soon as Hitler read the letter, he saw the plans had changed and he moved all of his forces out of Spain and over into the Balkans. What I haven't told you about this story is that William Martin went by another name. He was also known as the man who never was. William Martin was the centerpiece of an elaborate hoax named Operation Mincemeat. It had been designed to deceive Hitler and the top brass of the Nazi command into thinking that the invasion was going to be in Greece. I mean, this is like it's out of a James Bond movie. And it makes sense because guess what? Ian Fleming, the creator of James Bond, was the one who came up with the plan to begin with. He was working for MI5 and MI6 at the time. And so here's how Opera Operation Mincemeat kind of came to be. The idea is as follows. They needed to find a fresh corpse of a recently deceased man. Someone who had no family, who had no friends, and who had no ties to anyone else. They then needed to take that man and make sure he was of the right age and health to be serving in the military. He needed to be a man who had died in such a way that no coroner would be able to figure out what it was that caused his death. And they needed to create a whole new background of who he was. They gave him a fiancé. They wrote love letters to him and tucked them in his pockets. He had in his wallet, they called it like uh, wallet litter. In his wallet, they had like pay stubs and they had, you know, late like book fees at the library. They had all, they thought of every single detail so that this would be as believable as possible. And the last thing they did is they took that briefcase, they chained it to his waist and they inserted a letter from one general to another something that he would have the rank to carry, but not something so official that it would be unbelievable that it was in his possession. And when Hitler read that, he saw the evidence and he believed that the forces were moving to the Balkans. He was completely and entirely duped. And so on the morning of April 30th, early in the morning before the sun had risen, Captain William Martin didn't fall from the sky and drown in the ocean. The submarine, the HMS Seraph, uh, submerged from the surface, or submerged, rose from the bottom of the ocean, and they heaved William Martin's body into the ocean. They gave it a little push with the engines, and William Martin was found by spies shortly after. It's an incredible story, and as one historian puts it, it is the most successful single deception operation in the entire war. Tens of thousands of lives had been saved because the British had deceived the Nazis. And I'll tell you this, it's not the first time that, that deception and subterfuge were used in warfare. What we see in the life of David when he is at war with King Saul is that he and his compatriots, they're pretty good at this game too. And so we're going to see that in 1 Samuel 21. We aren't going to see Operation Mincemeat, but what we are going to get to see is Operation Holy Bread. And so here's how we get to 1 Samuel chapter 21. I mean, David's life is like a spy thriller that we could be watching. David, after he defeats Goliath, the armies of Israel are victorious over the Philistines, and they begin to make their way home. And David and Saul, as they're marching into the cities, 
the people of God start coming out and they start singing David's praises. And as they're singing David's praises, it becomes abundantly clear that David is a real present threat to Saul's throne. And so Saul tries to kill him with his spear. And from that point on, what Samuel tells us is that David and Saul were enemies continually. Nothing is going to stop Saul from seeing David put into the grave. And so Saul, he, you know, we aren't going to go through all the details. It's worth reading in an afternoon. I mean, it's very exciting. But Saul, he ends up trying all sorts of different strategies to kill David, to eliminate the threat. He tries to have the Philistines kill him. He sends assassins to kill him. He seeks to kill him himself with a spear. He does all sorts of things. But every single time, David seems to get the better of Saul. But at the end of the day, as we saw with what Chris preached from 1 Samuel chapter 20 last week, Saul is getting closer and closer to succeeding, and Saul is refusing to stop his personal war on David. And so Jonathan, Saul's son, and David, they come up with that secret message, that system of firing the arrows into the field so that he can warn David when it's time to run. And when it's clearly time to run, David receives the message, and off he goes, and he comes to the city of Nob, which is where we are in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Now, Nob is a pretty significant and important place. It's just two, two and a half miles north of the city of Jerusalem, and it's the place that the priests of Israel have kind of set up shop. In the city of Nob, they've raised the tabernacle, and that's where all the religious services and work is being done, day in and day out. And so naturally, David flees there because that would be a good place to go to maybe find some help. Saul is after David. And because he's in such a hot pursuit, David had to leave Jonathan's side without sword, without food, and without gathering his men together. He's in a real predicament. And so here he is. He shows up at the city of Nob where the, where the tabernacle has been set up. And let's look at just verses 1 and 2 here for a second. So David came to Nob, and Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came out to meet David, trembling. And he said to him, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? And so if we're like imagining this scene in our mind's eye, the reason Ahimelech is so concerned, the reason why he's afraid, is because nothing in this whole situation smells right to him. In the past, David would have gone to Nob. We learn in 1 Samuel 22 that David had gone multiple times to call out on the Lord, to inquire of what he should do. And I am sure that in those times when he would have gone to Nob, being a general in Saul's army, being a royal ambassador of sorts, he would have been accompanied with an entire entourage of men. He would have come probably fully arrayed in all of his battle gear. He would have come... And it would have been a big deal. So when Saul shows up on this given morning, and Ahimelech sees him coming, something's not quite right. Something seems off. And so Ahimelech is afraid, and Ahimelech goes on ahead, and he asks David these two questions. What we don't have in our passage in the bulletin, but I'll just share with you, is there's another predicament that's making this really tense. At the same time that David and Ahimelech are meeting, there's a guy named Doag the Edomite who is a faithful servant of Saul 
who's being detained at the tabernacle. And he's observing and he's watching and he's listening to everything that's being said and done between David and Ahimelech. So when David shows up, David has good reason to be afraid as well. He doesn't know what Doag is doing there. He doesn't know what Doag is going to say or do. He also doesn't know much about Ahimelech. You know, if we, if we were to jump into the family history of the priests of Israel, Ahimelech has a pretty important brother, Ahijah. Ahijah is Saul's personal, private, spiritual advisor. After Samuel and Saul parted ways when Saul had sinned against the Lord, Saul decided, I need a spiritual advisor to take his place, and so he chose Ahijah for himself. And Ahijah is very loyal to Saul. Therefore, Ahimelech might be in Saul's back pocket too. And so when Ahimelech asks David, why are you alone and why is no one with you? David has a choice. He can either, he can either just tell the truth. He can say, look, Saul is out to kill me. I am in such a rush to get away. Can you help me? That's one option. The other because he's in a season of war, because he doesn't know whose side Ahimelech is on, because he doesn't know what Doag the Edomite is going to do since he's sitting over here in the other room, David chooses to initiate Operation Holy Bread. He begins to, he begins to start a plan of deception. And that's how he answers Ahimelech. Look at verse 2. He says, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. So David basically, he says to him like, look, I am on a secret mission from Saul. It is so important that I get this mission done that the second he finished telling me about it, I had to leave in a hurry. The only reason I'm here at Nob is to stop and get some supplies, but then I'm on my way and I'm going to go and meet with the men that I've appointed to meet with. Can you help? I can't tell you any more details than that. That's why, that's like the deception that David comes up with. And Ahimelech buys it hook, line, and sinker. David asks the next question. He says, is there any bread that you can give me? Five loaves of bread or whatever is here. Look at verse 4. And the priest answered David and said, I have no common bread in hand, but there is the holy bread. And then if you jump down to verse 6, it says that the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. This is a significant detail for us to understand so that we can kind of get our minds around the passage and what's going on. The bread of the presence goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. When God was instructing Moses in the way in which they were to build the tabernacle and furnish the tabernacle and establish the priesthood, and when he was giving him instructions on what the ceremonial law was for the things they could and could not do, there was this table called the table of the presence. So if, if you remember what the tabernacle looks like, you have a room in the very back of the tabernacle called the holiest of holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant would have sat. And then there would have been a curtain that divided that room from the rest of the tabernacle. The rest of the tabernacle was known as the holy place. And in there, there would have been a number of pieces of furniture. There would have been like the altar of incense. There would have been the menorah candle. And then, of course, there would have been the table for the bread of the presence. 
And each week on the Sabbath, the priests were required to go in and take 12 hot loaves of bread and put it on that table. And then the loaves that had been there from the week before, they were to take it out. The bread of the presence was holy because it was representative of the kind of covenant relationship the people of Israel had with Yahweh God Almighty. It was a picture of the kind of table fellowship that they had with one another. So this bread wasn't common bread. It was bread that had been set apart with a purpose. And when Moses was receiving all this instruction and the ceremonial laws, one of the things that the Lord had told him was that the bread of the presence, when it was taken out of the tabernacle, was to be divided up among the sons of Aaron. Meaning that it was only the priests who were allowed to eat this bread. So when David comes to Ahimelech and he's asking for bread, and Ahimelech says, the only thing I have on hand is the ceremonial bread of the presence. That should raise a red flag in our minds. Because if David is to take and eat this bread, then what it appears, you know, what appears to be happening is David is violating God's ceremonial law. And David is not the first of the Lord's anointed to violate ceremonial law. If we were to jump back to 1 Samuel chapter 13, the Israelites are about to go into war with the Philistines and Saul is waiting for Samuel to come and make a sacrifice to the Lord. And when Samuel doesn't show up in time, Saul takes matters into his own hands and he offers the sacrifice. He offers the sacrifice and he violates the ceremonial law that God had laid out. And when he does that, Samuel shows up and Samuel... He says, God is so upset with you, Saul, and with what you've done. The kingdom is being taken away from your hands and from your family. And it's going to be given to someone else. So Saul violated ceremonial law. Now we come here in 1 Samuel 21, and David seems to be violating ceremonial law. Ahimelech gives him the bread, and off he goes. Now, Ahimelech, when he gives the bread, he doesn't just give it flippantly. He does say, because it's holy bread, because it's consecrated bread, your men need to have kept themselves purified or spiritually clean by not having slept with women since you're on a mission for the king. And David assures him that that is the case. But what's interesting about our passage is that there is no comment about whether or not this was right or wrong. And it kind of leaves... It leaves a question in the back of your mind of like, what is God going to do with David because of this instance? What is going to happen with this violation of the law? Well, thankfully for me especially, but also thankfully for you, I don't have to answer that question. Jesus does it for us. And so if you'll bear with me for just a minute, let's flip over to panel five and look at what Jesus has to say in Mark chapter two. This is so, honestly, this is so convicting and encouraging. I'm just excited to get to share it with you. This is so convicting and encouraging. But the context of Mark chapter 2, just to help us out for just a second, Jesus is about to have a confrontation with the Pharisees 
about keeping the Sabbath law, keeping the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Rest from all your work and labor. Worship your God. The Pharisees are going to see something that the disciples are doing and they're going to accuse them and accuse Jesus of breaking God's law. And Jesus is going to use the story from 1 Samuel 21 to answer their accusation. But it helps us to understand just where the Pharisees came from to begin with. So when the Greek empire kind of came to power, one of the things that the Greeks really wanted to do they wanted to have a universal culture over all the, all the other nations that they had conquered. They wanted people to basically be assimilated into their culture, to worship their gods, to believe what they believe, to have one language, to basically change your identity from being, say, an Israelite to being a Greek. This is also called Hellenization. And so when the Greeks had taken over, it became a real threat to the people of God that they were going to give in and lose their identity, that they were going to be Greekified in such a way that they would have lost their identity in Yahweh. And so the religious leaders of the day, they started rising up and they kind of became the Pharisaical party. And they started creating all these rules and regulations and laws to try to stop the Hellenization process uh, from taking over. Well, the Romans come in and the Romans conquer the Greeks and the Romans aren't so interested in a universal culture. The thing that the Romans care about is, are you paying your taxes? Do you promise to support Caesar? And are you keeping the peace? If you're doing those things, we're good. If you're not doing those things, we'll come in and we will drop the hammer on what's going on. But even though kind of the Hellenization process had changed, the Pharisaical party continued to view these new laws and regulations and oral traditions as if it was God's law itself. And so all of a sudden, things like keeping the Sabbath became a long, long list of do's and don'ts. And instead of the Sabbath being a day of rest and a day of blessing to the people of the Lord, the Pharisees had started to turn it into a burden. And so that's kind of the background of what's going on in Mark chapter 2. Here, Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through a field of grain. And as they go, it's the Sabbath day. As they go, his disciples are hungry and they begin to pluck heads of grain. And they would rub it between their hands to get the chafe off. And they would eat that little snack. When the Pharisees see this, they remember the oral traditions that they've come up with. And they deem it as working on the Sabbath. They say, Jesus, your disciples are violating the Sabbath law. They're reaping and they're harvesting and they're threshing when they should be resting and worshiping. And Jesus, he doesn't back down. He's so good at this. Jesus says to them with, with answering with a question, he says, have you ever read your Bibles? I'll tell you what, when he said that to the Pharisees, the water went from warm to boiling. These are the religious elite of the world. These were men who had read and knew their Bibles supposedly better than anyone else on the face of the earth. It'd be like if I went into like Bronco's headquarters in Denver and met up with Peyton Manning and was like, have you ever watched game film? Or have you ever read a playbook? I mean, it would be appalling. I would never do that. 
Peyton Manning, nor should the Pharisees have ever said this to David, or to Jesus. So Jesus says to them, have you never read what David did? Look at verse 25. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, this, well, well, we'll save that for a minute. So Jesus basically says to them, have you not read the story of David when he was at Nob in 1 Samuel chapter 21? When he went in and he got the bread and he ate it, even though it was unlawful for him to do this thing? Pharisees, what do you do with that? And the Pharisees are silent. You know, they're, in, they're now, they're caught on flat feet. They're now in a really tough position. If they say that David sinned, they're saying something that the Old Testament didn't say about David in this moment. So they don't want to do that. But they, if they acknowledge that what Jesus is saying is true, then they're also acknowledging that what Jesus' disciples are doing is totally permissible. Which, of course, if, if we were to go back and look at God's law, we would see that this is, in fact, something that was permissible by God's law. The disciples had done nothing wrong. They had done nothing wrong. And so it's as if Jesus is saying, you know, you pride yourselves in being the very people who uphold the law. You and your scribes deem yourselves to be so thoroughly versed that you are able to teach others that you yourselves are unequated with the fact that even the law that David violated was allowed its ceremonial restrictions to be ignored in the case of need and desperation. Jesus is saying that David didn't violate the law because it is good to do good on the Sabbath. You've created all these rules and regulations that have become a burden on the people of God. So much so that the Sabbath is no longer a day of rest, but it's in a sense, it's a day of chores. This would have been immensely, immensely convicting. David did nothing wrong, nor did the disciples. So Jesus, though, he doesn't stop there. This isn't Jesus just using the story of David in 1 Samuel 21 as sort of a precedent to get his disciples out of trouble. David wants to really, or Jesus really wants to correct the heart issue of what's taking place with the Pharisees. That's why he says, if you're looking at the passage, that's why he says in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. It wasn't meant to be something that was a burden it was meant to be a great blessing. God wanted, as part of the rhythm of the life of his people, a day of rest, a day where they would stop from all their regular work and all their regular toil and all their regular strife and all the things that were going on in their life. He wanted them to take a day and stop and rest and worship him and trust in him. That's what was intended in the Sabbath. But the... Pharisees, of course, they had flipped it over. 
And they said, well, no, the Sabbath is made for man. It's a, it's a work that they need to be doing. Well, what does this have to do with us? And how is this, as I said earlier, so convicting but also so encouraging? The Sabbath has been moved. The day has changed. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath was the last day of the week. It was Saturday for the Jews. The church, after the resurrection of Jesus, the day of rest became the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Sunday morning, because Jesus rose on Sunday morning. And the sad thing is, God intends the Lord's Day to be a day of rest and a day of encouragement and a day in which we would come and we would worship the Lord and be, you know, be encouraged and edified and kind of energized in him. But speaking for myself, and I think that I would be surprised if anyone in here hasn't felt this way before, there's oftentimes a Sunday morning here or there where it feels more like a burden to come to church than it is a blessing. There are some Sunday mornings where it's easy to wake up and think, I would rather just stay in bed. Things have been so crazy, so bonkers this week. You know, do I want to go through all the work that it is to get the kids ready, get in the car, and to go? Couldn't I just sit down later on and watch the service online? And we allow in our heart of hearts, in the sinfulness of who we are, it's easy to turn Sunday morning worship into a chore or into a burden. I think that is extremely convicting. Because the whole purpose of gathering together is for our good. The Lord is saying in the New Testament that there is no better place for you or I to be then here on Sunday morning, gathered together, worshiping him in spirit and in truth. There's no better place for you or I to be. You know, sometimes we do turn it into like a checkbox a little bit. Like sometimes it is easy because it feels like a burden that we're going to go out of obligation and duty. And I want to be clear that if you don't feel like coming, I'm not saying that you shouldn't come at all. It, it, I mean, there is, in a sense, like you should come even if you don't feel like coming. But really, this is a matter of doing a heart check. Why is it that it feels like a burden to me? Now, there's also the element in which this is extremely encouraging. Jesus saying to the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath is also a reminder to you and me that Lord's Day worship is for our good. That he wants to bless us as we come and we rest in the finished work of Christ. You know, summer vacation is here. A lot of us are getting ready to go. I was just, you know, I was talking with Craig Parker just before the service about how I'm already counting down the days before Courtney and I head off to Colorado. You know, I'm going to get out in the dead heat of August and I can't wait to sit down by that cool mountain stream early in the morning and take a deep breath of the fresh air and get ready to, you know, toss my flies into the river and catch some fish and enjoy being out in God's creation. It's restful. It's wonderful. That kind of rest can't even begin to compare to what you and I know it's like 
when we come to worship and we are fully engaged, heart, mind, and soul, in meeting with the living God, in meeting with Christ, with our brothers and sisters. I'm sure all of us have had that experience of what it's like after a day of singing and praying and praising, in listening to God's word, in partaking of the Lord's table, walking out and feeling like I've had a glimpse of what it's going to be like to rest with Christ my Savior for all eternity. God intends the Lord's Day to be that for us every single Sunday because it's for our good. And so the challenge to us, beloved, is this. There's no better place for us to be than gathered together in worship. Let's enjoy that wonderful gift and blessing. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we do give you thanks for your word and for the story of David at Nob. And for the words of Jesus that you have given us the Sabbath, not for anything but our good and for your glory. May we enjoy it as we worship you and as we come to the table. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.